today we're going to talk about promises. Promises are, are universal. They're part of every culture. They, they make the world go round. I promise that Ian is coming back next Sunday, and he's going to preach. Uh, business deals, if you think about it, they're really just promises. If you, if you have a cell phone plan, you promise to pay a monthly fee, and the cell company promises to give you a certain amount of cellular data. We make promises at work, and we make promises at home, and, and some are kept, and some aren't, but promises are made by people all over the world every day. Some promises are, are pretty funny, like these wedding vows I read this week. I promise not to gasp when you are driving. That's, that's a good one. I promise that as your wife, I will not keep score even though I am totally winning. I promise to unclog the drains even though you are the only one of us with long hair. Preach. I promise to do the stuff neither of us wants to do if you really don't want to do it more than I don't. Promises, they're such an important part of life. And God has made some promises too, and, and his promises are better than ours. When, when God promises something, we can know without a shred of doubt that he's gonna follow through. That's what we've learned throughout this series is, as we've been anchoring in the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. We've seen God's faithfulness. We've seen Joseph be able to persevere, to have a positive attitude, and to have a unique perspective on all that he's had to face. This was possible because he trusted in God and in his promises. So I know, I know we pretty much wrapped up Joseph's story last week, but today I wanna to spend some time just recapping what we've talked about over the last few weeks and then and spend some more time talking about God's promises to Joseph and to us. So with that, with that being said, here's, here's one of the highlights from, from week one. Go ahead and take it. That's all you need to know from, from week one. Actually, uh, Todd made that and, and sent it to me, and now I've sent him on a sabbatical. So, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't spread that rumor around. It's not good. Uh, in, in, in week one, we were in Genesis 37, and, and we learned all about Joseph's dysfunctional family. Joseph has 10 older brothers, and he's the favorite son of their father, Jacob. Verse three. Now Israel, that's, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So there, there's a lot of issues in this family. Jacob, we read this throughout the chapter, Jacob's playing favorites, and he's also a very passive father. In verse five, we read about Joseph's dreams. In his dreams, his brothers are bowing down to him, and for some reason, he shares those dreams with his family. And as you can imagine, his brothers don't, don't take that news very well. So shortly after that, they have an opportunity to hurt Joseph. Uh, the family business was shepherding. So they're, they're out shepherding in the, in the fields, they're out working, and they see Joseph coming and they say, here comes this dreamer, let's kill him. They actually don't end up killing, but in, killing him, but instead they sell him to some merchants and then they just fake his death. There's a lot of dysfunction in this family. And that's the first truth that we learn from Joseph. It's that dysfunction does not disqualify you. God brings healing. God brings restoration to this broken family. Despite all of their dysfunction, God still uses them for great things. We all have some amount of dysfunction in our lives. And I'm not just talking about in our families, but, but inside of us. We are dysfunctional. 
I want to remind you that dysfunction does not disqualify you. The truth is actually the opposite. It's because of your dysfunction that you qualify. It's because of your dysfunction that Christ died for you. And because of Jesus, you can come to God. So not only that, if that's not good news enough, dysfunction does not disqualify you from serving God in mighty ways. God has shown you grace. He forgives you. But then he invites you to be part of his story. The second truth we learn from Joseph is that temptation is timeless. Temptation is timeless. Joseph gets taken to Egypt, uh, to Potiphar's house. Potiphar is the captain of the guard. And we read that the Lord was with Joseph, caused, to, caused him to succeed. And, and we don't know whether it's been two months or two years, but Potiphar notices that God is with Joseph. And he eventually puts him in charge of his whole house. And now I'm sure that Joseph dealt with temptation his whole life, just like us. But this specific temptation recorded for us comes at a turning point in Joseph's life. In Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife, she sets her sights on Joseph and she tries to seduce him every day. Sin, we see, is persistent. It's persuasive. But like Joseph, we can't be gentle with our emotions. Verse eight, he refused. Verse nine, he says it's a great wickedness and sin against God. Verse 10, he wouldn't even listen to her. In verse 12, he fled. He ran away. Joseph does not mess around. He refuses, he ignores, and he runs. He literally runs away. The Apostle Paul talks about temptations uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, and he encourages us to flee from idolatry, to be like Joseph, to run away from idolatry. What, what's idolatry? Well, it's something that takes the place of God in your life. It's the birthplace of temptation. We have this void in our souls that can only be filled by Jesus, yet we're so often tempted to look for that fulfillment in other things. We're, we're so often tempted to, to look for that meaning, that purpose in other things that just leave us feeling empty. So the invitation for us because of the work of Jesus on the cross is to run toward the open arms of the Father, to not just run away, not just flee from idolatry, idolatry to, to run away from temptation, but to run toward something, to run toward God. Back to Joseph. He does the right thing, doesn't he? But bad things happen to him. Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape and he gets thrown into prison. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison too. And it's not, it's not too long before that's noticed again. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So then in Genesis 40, we read that Pharaoh's cupbearer and, and baker are thrown into the same prison as Joseph. They're put under his charge. And one night they have these very troubling, confusing dreams. They don't know what, what they mean. Well, dreams are kind of Joseph's thing. And so he interprets the dreams and what he tells them occurs in three days. So in three days, the cupbearer, he gets restored to his position in Pharaoh's house. And in three days, the baker is executed. And Joseph does what I think any of us would do. He asks the cupbearer to remember him when he has an audience with Pharaoh. When you are back in Pharaoh's good graces, just remember me in prison. I'm innocent. 
I'm here for something I didn't do. Please remember me and help me. But the cupbearer, he forgets. He forgets Joseph. And chapter 41 begins with the words, after two whole years. Joseph's stuck in prison for two more long years. But then one night, Pharaoh has some confusing, troubling dreams himself, and he gathers all of his magicians, all of the wise men in Egypt, but no one, no one can tell him what they mean. No one can interpret the dreams. And it's at this moment that the cupbearer finally remembers, hey, there was this guy in prison, and, and he, he helped me. He interpreted my dreams. You know, maybe he can help you. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph, and in verse 25, Joseph tells him the meaning of his dreams. He says, Pharaoh, here's what your dreams mean. There's gonna be seven years of great plenty. It's gonna be seven great years. There's gonna be more excess than you know what to do with, but, but then there's gonna be seven years of famine, and not just any famine. This is gonna be the greatest famine that you've ever known. Joseph goes into planning mode, and he says, here's what, here's what I think you should do. You should appoint some people you trust, to oversee all of the land and then each year during the, the years of excess, set aside some food, set aside some extra every year so that when the famine hits, you have food and you don't starve. Pharaoh likes the plan and he not only puts Joseph in charge of the food project, but he puts him over all of Egypt. Joseph goes from slave to prime minister in a matter of minutes. That's, that's amazing, all of the waiting, all of the suffering has led Joseph to this moment. It's prepared him for this. And God uses Joseph to save everyone from starvation. This is the third truth we learn from Joseph's life. Suffering sculpts. God is the master sculptor, and he has a plan. He, He uses everything, and I mean everything. The consequences of our sin, of our actions, the consequences of other people's sin against us, uh, the, the difficulties and unexpected tragedies we face that are just a result of our broken, sinful world. God uses all of it to sculpt us into something new, into something beautiful. But like Joseph, we have to, we have to let God do that. We have to let him sculpt us. Near the end of chapter 41, Joseph has two sons. And I love, I love what he names them. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph is saying, God has helped me to see all of my suffering in a different light. He's given me a new perspective. It's, it's as if uh, God has made me forget. And not only that, God has both blessed me and he's allowed me to be a blessing to others. So my encouragement to you is to let God sculpt you into something new and, and know with confidence that you'll be able to say, God has made me forget. God has, has given me the eyes to see this all differently. And God has made me fruitful. He's blessed me. And God has used me to be a blessing to others. So Joseph's sons, they're born during the seven years of, of great plenty. Things are going well. But then the seven years of famine hit, and we read a few verses later that the famine not only affected Egypt, but all of the known world. People from all over are coming to Egypt. They're coming to Joseph to buy food. One such group of people just so happened to be Joseph's brothers. More than 20 years after they betrayed him and sold him into slavery, they come back into his life. In chapter 42, it says they come in and they, they bow down before Joseph. They, they don't recognize him. 
Joseph recognizes them immediately, and I'm sure he remembered his dreams in Genesis 37 when his brothers were bowing down to him. It's happening right before his eyes. And over the next few chapters, the tension builds and builds and builds, and, and finally Joseph just can't take it anymore. And in chapter, in chapter 45, he finally reveals his true identity to his brothers, and what? Does he get revenge? Does he use his power and influence to enact justice on his brothers for what they did to him? No, he doesn't. He, he forgives them. He forgives. He lets go of his hurt. He releases them from their guilt. And this is the fourth truth we learn from Joseph's life. Forgiveness is the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation of our faith in God. Without forgiveness, there'd be no future. There'd be no hope for eternity. The, the, the truth is, we're all guilty. We all fall short. We all have offended a holy God. But in Jesus Christ, we're offered forgiveness. And that forgiveness we experience, that free gift of grace that we, we experience is the launching point for everything else. It's the foundation of our faith in God and our faith lived out. Because we've been forgiven, we're able to see things differently. The dysfunction in our hearts, the temptations we face, the suffering we experience, because of God's forgiveness, the trajectory of our lives are forever changed. It's only because of Joseph's relationship with God that he was able to look at his brothers in the eye and say, I forgive you. Don't be angry with yourselves. God sent me here before you to preserve life. That could be true for us. Because of Jesus and with his help, really only with his help, we can be a people marked by forgiveness. Because of the grace we've been shown, we can show grace to others. Joseph tells his, his brothers in chapter 50, verse 19, he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Those two verses, they're near the end of Joseph's story, but, but I think they're vitally important. They highlight Joseph's change, Joseph change in perspective and his, his ability to persevere. Joseph endured so much in his life, but he held on. And actually, if you think about it, he didn't just hold on, he thrived. The Lord was with Joseph and he lived his life like he knew that was true. So how can we, how can we live like that's true in our lives, that we know God's with us? How can we have the same attitude? How can we persevere? Well, that's the final truth we learned from Joseph. It's that perseverance is rooted in promises. It's perseverance is rooted in promises. We, we've talked about this a few times in the series, but, but God made a promise to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. He said that through his lineage, all nations of the, of the earth would be blessed. This was God's plan to restore what sin had destroyed. Joseph trusted in that promise. Now, he didn't know that God's promise would eventually be fulfilled in Jesus. He didn't have the scope to see that, but but Joseph trusted in that promise. He knew that God wanted to use his family, that God wanted to use him to bless all the nations of the earth. And I'm sure that as he says in verse 20, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I'm, I'm sure that Joseph saw 
saw that, saw his position, and all the years, all the suffering he'd experienced, and all the, uh, his time as prime minister, and saving people from starvation, he saw that as a fulfillment of that promise. God used Joseph to bless all these families of the earth. Joseph trusted God, and he trusted that God would continue to be faithful. And when we experience dysfunction, temptation, suffering, and anything else that we face in life, we can trust in that very same promise because we know it's already been fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's, that's the promise. We've been saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's where our hope is. That's how we persevere. Like, like Joseph, we trust in the promise of God and not our own strength. We don't trust in our abilities, our limited sight, our limited scope, our, our plans. We trust in our God who can see all and is over all. The, the same God who has shown us so much grace, who's given us hope. Our perseverance is rooted in promises. And not, not just that promise, all of God's promises. It, it used to be a common belief that the Bible contained around 30,000 promises. But in 1955, a Canadian school teacher named Everett R. Storms, he just wasn't buying it. He questioned that and he, he set out to count the number of promises in Scripture. It took him a year and a half, and get this, he read the Bible from front to back 27 times in a year and a half. It's a, it's a good thing that we don't compare our intake of scripture with anybody else. You know, it's quality, not quantity, because he wins 27 times in a year and a half, and he compiled a list of promises. And when finished, he had recorded 8,810, 7,487 of which were made by God to man, 7,000 487 promises. Now bear in mind that, that many of those promises were made to specific people for a specific time. So when you're reading your Bible and you come across a promise, make sure you, you understand the context um, because sometimes, some of those promises aren't, aren't for you. But many of them are. Many of them are. Here, here are just a few. I'm gonna rapid fire these. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Isaiah 40.29, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Ephesians 1, 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. John 11.25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And then one of my favorites, Romans 8, 28 and 29, and, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. For, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So I want to break this down a little bit and break it down. I'm not going to dance because someone will tell Todd and he'll make another video. <laughs> Looking at you, Nicole, you'll tell Todd. And we know that for those who love God, and we know for those, that for those who love God, that's a commitment. That's someone who puts their trust in him, who seeks after him, who, who has a relationship with God. The next part, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you love God and have a relationship with him, you're called according to his purpose. The promise then is that all things work together for good. All things work together for good. And this isn't some sort of silver lining where every bad situation can have a good result. That's not the promise. Sometimes, sometimes bad things are just bad. So what is this saying? What is the good in Romans 8? The answer is in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Our good is all about being more like Jesus, being conformed to the image of his son. And it's not some superficial likeness of Jesus. It's, it's total. It's complete. There's a, a wholeness when God transforms us to make us more like Jesus. And God, he uses all things for good. He uses all things to change our character. He uses the good and the bad and the ugly to make us as loving, noble, true, wise, strong, good, joyful, and kind as Jesus is. That truth, that truth can help us to persevere through so much. It has helped me to persevere. In 2015, my wife Kristen and I, we moved to Massachusetts to help start a new, new church. You're probably tired of, of hearing about that. Uh, but, but through a series of circumstances, both professional and personal, that first couple years became one of the hardest seasons we've ever experienced. And for a time, it felt like we were on a rocky shore, just getting constantly hammered by, by the waves. You ever, you ever feel like that? And in the summer of 2016, we had the opportunity to, to leave New England. We had a, had a job opportunity back here in the Midwest. And that was a turning point for us. I remember one night through tears, we decided to, to stay. We decided to stay. We both agreed that God wanted us there for that season. God wanted us to persevere. And his, it was his promises. It was his faithfulness that kept us going. We'd seen God be faithful. We knew, we knew some of his promises. And we knew that God wanted us to, to, to persevere. So we planted ourselves, and with his help, we did. And it's because of that experience that I understand Romans 8.28 more than I ever have. You know, I can look back now more than five years later and even if I had the power to change anything, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. We both grew so much through that season. We both grew so much. And, and now when I look back, I don't see despair over the difficulty. I don't feel anger about the stuff that happened. I have joy knowing that God used all of it. God used all of it to make us more like Jesus. And being more like Jesus is the best thing for us. It's the best thing for those in our lives. Being more like Jesus is the best thing for our marriage. Being more like Jesus is the best thing for our kids. 
Tim Keller said the life of faith is, is not the perfect life. It is the life which clings onto what God has said he will do and which sees struggles, joys, and failures as means of increasing our attachment to the God who makes and keeps his promises. In order for your ability to persevere, to be rooted in God's promises, you have to know God's promises. You have to know them. So, so read them. Experiencing the, experience them firsthand. Pick up a Bible. Find a reading plan about prom, God's promises on, on Bible.com. Save them on your phone. Uh, get it, pick up a, a devotion about, about uh, God's, God's promises. Find a, ask someone for recommendations if you're not sure where to start. Hang God's promises on your bathroom mirror. Put them in your wallet or purse. Learn God's promises for you so that you can remind yourself and others in those moments that you desperately need to remember them. The band's gonna come out and play a song for you. This song is meant to encourage you and, and, and you can stay seated during the song and, and use this time to reflect on God's promises. Maybe you don't know many of God's promises. So reflect on the promise, the promise that sin, sin separates you from a holy God. Sin, it separated you. But God made a way through Jesus for you to have a restored relationship with him. That's, that's the promise. Use this time to reaffirm your love for him and be reminded that he's working all things together for your good. And if you wanna make that decision to follow Jesus for the first time or if you have questions about what that means, come see us at Next Steps after the service in the lobby. You can also mark it on your Connect card. Talk to someone you know and trust who loves Jesus. But know today, God's promises are for you. They're for you. And like Joseph, we're not always gonna be able to see how God's moving, how he's working all things together for our good, how he's using all things to make us more like Jesus. We can't always see that until we're on the other side of some things. But we can trust in his promises. And also like Joseph, we can be unlikely heroes. We've been invited to be a part of God's story and we can persevere through anything because God is with us and God is faithful.